Let me turn myself on. There we go. There we go. Yeah, the fact that I need to hit the road. I've got a meeting at, on, at Norfolk Showground this afternoon. I'm praying the traffic will part for Moses. But, um, so Bob's suggestion was that I speak at double speed, and then you can listen back to it on the podcast at half speed, and you'll know what I said. But I'm going to try and aim for normal speed. It'll be okay. We've got plenty of time. Do you want to turn to the tiny book letter of Philemon? Is uh, just before Hebrews in the New Testament. Philemon, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, it's just before Hebrews. If you can't find it, it's going to come up on the screen in a minute. A very, very tiny letter of Paul. Um, we're just in our mini-series, five Sundays on little letters, big truths. There are some tiny letters in the New Testament that get hidden away. And um, they get hidden away in the New Testament. They can get skipped over. And we don't really know what 2 John and 3 John are all about and so on. So um, we're spending some time in, in some of those. We're not going to do Jude because actually Jude, if you look at it, that demands a mini-series on its own. So we'll do that another time. Um, but uh, I'm doing part two of Finneman this week and then we're going to do two John and three John in over three weeks coming up shortly. They are little letters but they are big truths. All scriptures God breathed and there is gospel truth in these to lap up and enjoy. And this one is the shortest of Paul's letters and it is absolutely dripping with gospel truth. So we're spending two weeks on it. Now, yes, some call, it, call him Philemon, some call him Philemon. You say tomato, I say tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. Uh, I do know it's not pronounced filet mignon. So <laughs> we can all agree on that one. I, I, I call him Philemon because of Tom Wright, the, um, the pastor and theologian. Um, many of you call him Philemon. Doesn't really matter. We could always call him Phil and, and just, just leave it there. See how we get on. Last week, David um, led us through this um, short letter, mainly from the perspective of Philemon himself who is the master in this literal master and slave relationship, which we'll talk about a bit more in a moment. He was the master, and we looked at him, uh, looked at his perspective. This week, we're going to look at it a bit more from the um, perspective of uh, Onesimus, who is the slave in this relationship. And we'll see how, as David was saying last week, this demonstrates the gospel, it demonstrates reconciliation, and again, I'll talk about that a bit more later, but we also see how God then uses that of itself for greater purposes beyond that. The gospel is not just about a moment of salvation, about reconciliation with our creator. That's what the good news of Jesus is all about. But it's also about its ongoing effects for his glory and for our flourishing as well. It's not just about a ticket to heaven. It's about abundant life now as well. That's what we're going to find out. That's what we're going to explore. Um, Just to help explain some more of the context about when we're talking about slavery in the Roman world, It's a little bit different to how we sometimes hear that word. Today we talk about human trafficking and it's still in the millions. The numbers are higher than it's ever been. It's horrendous. Um, But it's 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 not socially acceptable these days, is it? Let's put it that way. Back then it was. It was embedded in society. It was a socially acceptable part of society. Now people, many, many people, a large chunk of society, they comprise what we would consider to be a working class who literally lived hand to mouth Uh, And there was little or no opportunity to be upwardly mobile, which is possibly possible now in in society. Rags to riches stories didn't really happen. These days, they're still rare, but they can happen. In the Roman world, in cities and towns, particularly in urban areas, a third of the people were rich, and they owned property and people. And the other two-thirds were either slaves or ex-slaves, known as freedmen. They'd been released from their slavery position. 
Um, the number of slaves in, in the Roman world at any given time ran into the millions, literally. And obviously the Roman world was not as big as the world we know now. It's huge numbers of people were slaves, and in the urban areas, up to two-thirds were either slaves or ex-slaves. So slavery in that context is effectively employment, but with bad employment rights. Does that help? So people would sell themselves into slavery, or they'd sell their children into slavery in order to secure a bed and a wage, in order to be sure you've got a roof over your head and some food in your belly. That's what the, the whole contract, the transaction, was all about. Um, and this, of course, this dynamic, this system um, uh, would often be abused, absolutely. Um, I mean, today we're having a series of strikes this year about working conditions, about pay, aren't we, in different sectors in our country. Democracy and its values, imperfect as it is in, of itself, it does enable us to fight for and retain fair treatment and respect as human beings. Beings. We, we, have, we have a voice for that, and that's why people go on strike. Whose, bin, whose bins are filling up? Your recycle bins are getting more and more full. Yeah, exactly. But the people have a right to do that because it's about employment rights. And back those, in those days, you did not have those kind of rights, so you could not fight for them. And so the slaves in the Roman Empire, they comprised a massive chunk of society who were powerless, but also generally they served the interests of the powerful. And that's kind of a broad headline of the Roman world. And into that picture, enter the gospel. Because this announcement, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, announces a divine rescuer who hadn't come to simply push the Romans off their perch, like many people have been hoping for. But instead, this is about a divine rescuer, Jesus, who had come to vanquish the hold of sin on our very hearts, spiritual slavery, which was the most radical and unexpected news. No one was expecting that at all. Well, that's the good news of Jesus. And so Jesus, and then subsequently Paul and the likes, didn't command slaves to be freed. I didn't tell slaves, you're no longer a slave, off you go. Because in that society, they'd be left destitute on the, on the streets with no roof and no food. The answer came that the gospel precipitated this a quiet cultural revolution that dismantled, over the centuries, the socially acceptable evil which slavery was. People weren't left destitute as a result. And so the gospel is a time bomb. It's a ticking time bomb for this new way of life that needed to be embraced, which would then change the social structures of the time, and ultimately forever. There's a great book, just offhand, there's a great book by Tom Holland called Dominion, about the effects of the gospel and the church on society as we know it today, and you realise how much of it is because of the gospel. It's fascinating. It's a quiet cultural revolution that works from the ground up. God's kingdom is exactly that. It's upside down and it's inside out. So then, now let's look at this letter and let's see why Paul is writing with this context in mind. Uh, just going to read all 25 verses of this little letter that come up here. Here we go. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You see, Paul is addressing uh, a number of his friends, Philemon in particular, but also a number of other friends. He talks about also about Aphia and Archippus, and he describes them all in verse 1 and 2, verse 2. Um, he describes them as a fellow worker, uh, as a sister, as a fellow soldier. These people, they're more than just acquaintances. They're, they're partners. They are family. They've been through spiritual skirmishes together. They fought the good fight together, haven't they? But then he also says, and to the church in your house. This is not a private letter about a specific spat between two people. This is a public service announcement. And therefore, this has immediate significance for the world at large, not just two people. So what's he saying? What's he asking for? Well, he's asking for something quite radical from Philemon because reading between the lines, we discover that Onesimus, whatever the details of this are, he's, he's a slave who's done a runner, apparently with some of Philemon's money or property or goods, and he's travelled a thousand miles from Colossae in Greece. He's travelled a thousand miles to Rome where he's met with Paul and he's turned to Christ. So now Paul is saying to his friend Philemon, verse 8, he says, Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. There's that family brotherly uh, tension already. An appeal for what? What's he asking for? Verse 10, For my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, as he came to faith. In verse 12 he says, I'm sending him back to you. Verse 15, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. That is huge. That is huge. The law permitted a master to even execute a rebellious slave. He could have executed Onesimus by law if he wanted to. 
But Paul is saying to him, I know Onesimus belonged to you legally. In fact, still does. I know he has wronged you. I know he's even stolen from you. I know he deserves execution. But out of your newfound unity to him in Christ, please understand that spiritually, you belong to him too now. You belong to each other. You're united in Christ. So he's, he's bonding to you now. is not as your servant, your bond servant. It's a different bond now. He's your brother. Christ's work in both of them has leveled the power dynamic, if you like, from superior and inferior to equals. Remember what we were learning just a few weeks ago in our Undivided series about unity in the church and the solution to, uh, to, to division in the church is always in Christ. It's simply about discovering that in Christ, what we share eclipses our divisions and our divisions, our differences and our divisions, doesn't it? What we share in Christ should eclipse that. And it's the same here. Paul is appealing to the cross. He's appealing to Christ, saying, what you have together, that should change everything. But Jesus deals with offences committed by us on the cross. He also deals with the power, the effects of uh, uh, of uh, offences committed against us at the cross as well. We can find healing and release from stuff at the cross that other people have, have committed against us as well. At the cross, he has birthed a new world where unity and healing as well can reign once and for all. And it's in this brilliant light then that Paul is appealing to Philemon to receive Onesimus as family not as fodder, not as property, not as someone who will always be his wrongdoer but as his forgiven brother in Christ. Amen. What a miracle. What an opportunity. Now, this is a fascinating contrast of worldviews um, between the gospel and the world at, at large. We can compare this to another letter from a similar time, in the, in the same time period. Um, there was a guy called Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman lawyer and a magistrate, and he used to write to a lot of dignitaries. He wrote to uh, emperors, uh, he wrote to you know, notable higher-uppers. We've got a number of his letters in existence. And one of them, he's written to a friend of his called Sabinianus. Now, Sabinianus has freed a slave. It's a similar situation. He's freed a slave, but this slave is still dependent on him. Remember, without, without that job, even though they're rubbish rights, without that job, what are you going to do for a living? It's all hand-to-mouth, isn't it? So he's freed this slave who is now still dependent on him, but this slave, ex-slave has also got himself into trouble. So this young, young, young lad, whoever he is, he's gone to Pliny, the writer, to plead for help. Will you have a chat with my ex-master for me? Will you help me out? I've got myself into trouble. And this is what it says. It says, the freedman of yours, with whom you said you were angry, he's been to me and he's flung himself at my feet and he's clung to me as if I were you. He begged my help with many tears, though he left a good deal unsaid. In short, he convinced me of his genuine penitence. I believe he has reformed because he realises he did wrong. Great, you think? Pliny sees repentance and so it's time for grace and mercy, right? Maybe not. Because Pliny carries on uh, to his friend. He says, you are angry, I know, and I know too that your anger was deserved. I hope that you will love him again, but it is sufficient for the moment if you allow yourself to be appeased. You can always be angry again if he deserves it. That, hang on, that's just a temporary ceasefire, isn't it? It's not really solving the situation. And then Pliny carries on, I have given the man a very severe scolding and I've warned him firmly that I will never make such a request again. This was because he deserved a fright. 
There's no grace there, is there? Pliny still has this hierarchy in mind, doesn't he? And he's appealing to Sabinianus' pride rather than grace. There's no grace right at the end. It's like, if it happens again, don't let him off. Just give me, just give me one chance. And so the freedman, he gets taken back as Sabinianus' inferior, but not as an equal. This is all about maintaining the status quo, maintaining the social hierarchy. This is essential. That was the answer. That system will continue, but with this veneer of everything being okay and Sabinianus being seen as a kind man for having him back. Man, in contrast, you look at what the gospel does. Look at what it's doing for Onesimus. You see the difference. Paul here, he's, he's immediately appealing to Philemon's unity, to his partnership with fellow believers through Christ. I mean, he even says in verse 5, he says, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Who does all the saints include? Onesimus. He's included in that. And so Paul introduces this challenge. He's got his twinkle in his eye. He's like, I could, I, I could command you, but I'm just appealing to you. Does it a little bit cheeky? It's brilliant. I love it. And then, he re- then after he makes this appeal, verse 17, he follows it up with another reinforcement of the gospel unity. He said, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Treat him no different as if it was me turning up. I love that. You see, Paul, he's putting one arm around Philemon, and he's putting one arm around Onesimus, and he's joining them together in his own person, isn't he? It's beautiful. That's exactly what Christ has done for you and me, isn't he? He's drawn us together in unity with God himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We, we are reconciled with God because of Jesus and then we get to participate in passing on this ministry of reconciliation. The good news of Jesus leaves us no choice. If we are not passing on what it means to be a minister of reconciliation, someone who's passing on this goodness and this grace and this kindness and this mercy, if we are not the people who pass that on, we haven't really got the gospel. We haven't really got what God's done for us. It's always a good tester, isn't it? A good health check. Because Paul himself, he lives this out. It's not just all gobby and he's not actually in secret, not living up to it. He lives up to his words. He puts his money where his mouth is. He's already doing it. You see, a reason why I went right to the end and reading all these names that don't seem to have anything to do with it. There's some clues here. Verse 24, um, he says, uh, says, Epaphras um, sends greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Mark gets mentioned in there. Mark's a fascinating character because he was the cause of a big problem with Paul and Barnabas 10 years earlier. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. Um, Paul and Barnabas had a falling out over Mark. Mark was proving to be quite unreliable and Barnabas wanted to take him with them on their ministry journey and Paul was like, I can't, he's so unreliable, I'm 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 not journeying with him. So Barnabas and Paul, they went their separate ways and Barnabas took Mark and went off on one journey and Paul and Silas went off in another direction on another journey. They had a falling out over this unreliable lad. And yet now here, Mark is with Paul in Rome ten years later being described as his fellow worker. I love that restitution and that, that redemption, that restoration of that relationship. It's beautiful. 
Paul is already living out the forgiveness and reconciliation he's asking of Philemon. Now, reconciliation, bit of an aside, but there's another name I want to talk about. Reconciliation does depend on the other party as well. You can't reconcile with someone who's either not willing to reconcile or their behaviour makes it hard. Because some people don't change. So you see in here, verse 24, another name gets mentioned, Demas. If you read 2 Timothy, another one of Paul's letters, just written just a very few years later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. It's gone the other way. One of his fellow workers, one of his beloved friends who's there with him. When he was, when he was in prison, he's a prisoner right now, he's in house arrest. He's allowed visitors, but he's not allowed to go out. That's how it works. That's why there's some people there with him. Demas was with him in that very private situation. And yet just a few years later, he's deserted him for the love of the world. He's gone. Their relationship has broken down. And Paul made no way of kind of chasing after him. He just had to accept that was his choice. It's not my choice, but it's his choice. And so while we can always, we, we should always be the first people to want reconciliation, and we should always be the first people to forgive, it always takes the other party to, to not abuse that situation, doesn't it? Of course it does. If someone, it turns out that they're still not repentant, or they appear to be, but their, their behaviour is still damaging, then it's okay to have boundaries for their sake. You want them to learn a lesson. You don't make it easy for them, do you, in that respect? Um, but sometimes you need boundaries to protect yourself, protect your family, protect whoever it might be around you, your loved ones and so on. It's your heart for forgiveness that's the key. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says, Live peaceably with all. That sounds quite simple and straightforward. Live peaceably with all, doesn't it? But that's not the full sentence. Romans 12, 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's only asking us just to play our part. If other people, by their, by their behaviour, corrupts, corrodes, decays that relationship and that situation, and they're causing more problems still for themselves and for others, it's okay to have boundaries in place. It's different. Forgiveness is what we are meant to do. Forgiveness is about not holding someone's sins over them, not remaining bitter and resentful, but laying any hurt that someone has caused in Jesus' healing hands. That's forgiveness, and that is on us. But repentance and change on their behalf is on the other party. And that, when you see any consistent character change, that helps us know when it's okay to dwell with them or not. It's different. Now, sometimes there is a place to turn the other cheek. Sometimes there is a place to get hurt. I'm not, I'm not, I want to be careful how I put this. You've got to be prayerfully led by Holy Spirit in these situations. Sometimes that brings breakthrough. But it's also okay to say no. And it's also okay to part ways. Does that make sense? If there's any unique situations in your, in your lives, you want to talk that through, come and find myself, Bob, David, let's talk it through, pray it through. They all need to be dealt with individually. I don't want to give a blanket statement and you'll <laughs> you misunderstand what I'm saying. There is a place to have boundaries, but we need to be the first who are willing to forgive and want to reconcile. Does that help? Good, okay. Wonderfully, however, I love that this all goes further as well. Like I said at the beginning, the gospel is not just about a moment of salvation, reconciliation with our creator. It's also about its ongoing effects for his glory and our flourishing. 
And the beautiful thing about this letter is that it teaches us the good news, therefore, is not just a saving from, it's also a saving for. In this little letter, we get to see this new world coming to birth. Because while Demas did miss out by his choices, we see Mark actually has got to enjoy the riches of the gospel at work 10 years later. I love it. Not just in being saved effectively, but in its benefits uh, too in this life as well as beyond. And in the same way, Onesimus gets to reap that harvest as well. Onesimus' name means beneficial. So Paul is doing a play on words when in verse 11 he says, he's no longer useless, he's useful to me and you. He's now living up to his name of being of benefit. Now, there's reports, historical reports, that possibly this is the same Onesimus who, led, who ended up becoming Bishop of Ephesus. We don't know for sure. It's also a common name at the time. So not everyone agrees. Some people are convinced. Some people are not so sure. What we do know about him is that Colossians chapter 4, another letter that wrote, Paul wrote at the same time that would have been coming with um, Onesimus on the same journey with this little letter to Philemon. There was another letter at the same time to the church in Colossae. Um, a larger letter for the whole church. Um, and in that, Colossians 4 verse 9, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And then following up in verse 18 of Philemon, Paul says, if Onesimus has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. You put those together, you see how rich Onesimus is now spiritually. He gets to not only return to his hometown, no longer as property, but as an official emissary of Paul, a representative of the church father. He's bearing both these letters that announce in public for everyone to hear this, Paul is saying, this young man is now my spiritual son. He's my very heart. He's an equal in Christ. He represents me to you in my absence and I'll pay all his debts. <sighs> Imagine the weight, the load lifting off Onesimus' shoulders when he heard those words. Brings you to tears. Onesimus gets to enjoy not just eternal life in the future, but an abundant one now in Christ. There lies an actual, impossible, unheard of, rags to riches story. There it is. He's gone from a subservient runaway thief to sharing in Jesus' heavenly inheritance with an eternal family, with all his debts cleared, spiritual and physical, and he now gets to act as a representative of the gospel being announced and demonstrated. And in fact, he's gone down to the history books and we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. <laughs> I love it. The good news of Jesus is literally a rags to riches tale for us. It's what we get. We are runaway thieves with a massive debt over our heads. Now that might not make any sense to you, but it's the truth for all of us as human beings. We have an overwhelming debt that we owe God because of our crimes against him. And I don't just mean the naughty things we do. I'm talking about, for example, not paying our taxes to the government is not literally taking from, but is not giving what is owed. Does that make sense? And that is still theft. You're withholding a debt. There's still theft. And in the same way, we steal glory and honour and acclaim from God every time we simply fail to give that to him whenever he's owed it. That's theft. Still a crime against the Holy God. 
We have an overwhelming debt against God. And yet in Christ, we receive utter riches in heaven. We have that debt cleared, but we also made rich in him. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We who once owed God beyond our comprehension have not only had our debts cleared in Jesus, but we also get to receive and inherit his eternal heavenly wealth. We get utter security and provision and fatherhood and guidance and peace and joy and purpose all beyond our wildest dreams because of Jesus. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? We are rich. Tell yourself, I am rich. Say say it now. I am rich in Jesus. I am rich in Jesus. It's true. It's not about bigging us up. It's about bigging him up and what he's given us. We are rich beyond our wildest dreams. And sometimes we we just wake up in the morning and go, oh, another Monday. You are rich in Jesus. Do you realise what you've got? We don't, don't, do we? (laughs) We don't. And that's why the more we realise that, the more we get to act as his emissaries and his representatives, we get to pass this on. It's like, I'm rich, you can be as well, you're missing out, you're in debt. Let's get that debt cleared. Meet with Jesus. Get rich in him for eternity. Oh, it's another another Monday. We do it, don't we? Oh, it's Wednesday. Speed up of the week. It's just like, we're rich in Christ, what are we doing? We need to wake up every morning and realise what we have in him. The good news is not just a saving from, but it's a saving for with a name and a purpose. This young man, Onesimus, he's now known as a brother, no longer as a slave. That's going to come to a close now, but you've seen the musical version of Les Mis, Les Miserables. Um, it's, it's quite different to the book in many ways. The broad sweeps of the story are the same, but there's a, there's a detail in it that they've really impressed home in the musical. It's quite different to in the book. Um, about the use of Jean Valjean's name. Um, it only happens a couple of times in, in the book, but it's used all the way through the musical, where Jean Valjean, if you're not familiar with the story, he's been in prison uh, through the story. He ends up in prison for 19 years for stealing some bread. Um, but on, when he gets parole, upon release, in the musical version, Javert, he's, he's the police inspector who's basically hounding him all his life. He's out to get him. You're a prisoner, you're a slave, you're a criminal. I'm going to have you. That's just his life's intent. But on Jean Valjean's release, um, Javert has only ever referred to him as prisoner 24601. And on Valjean's parole, as he's released, he immediately says to him, you will always be 24601. That's who you are now. You are prisoner 24601. And, and Valjean's like, my name is Valjean. I'm not 24601 anymore. I've served my time. He's like, no, you will always be 24601. That is not so in God's eyes. In Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. If you've turned to Christ for forgiveness and freedom, then regardless of how others see you, regardless of how you see yourself, regardless of what the devil might try and whisper in your ears, in Christ you are a new creation with a name and a purpose and a future. Amen? John chapter 8, verse 34 and 36. Jesus says, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So I want to, I want to pray for us, but maybe, maybe you do sometimes feel a bit useless. Maybe you do feel held back. Maybe you do feel like a slave to sin. Maybe you're concerned simply that other people think that of you. Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. 
He knew your name before you were born. He knew what you would become in him. He, he had your name on his, on his heart when he was on the cross. If you are Christ, you are a child of God. Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are his ambassador. You're his emissary. You're the apple of his eye. And you get to discover the wonderful implications of that today as well as tomorrow and the day after. That's the truth for you in Jesus right now. Maybe you're in a situation that feels constrictive. Um, it feels like it's unlikely to bear gospel breakthrough. Uh, gospel fruit, sometimes it can feel like that, feel hemmed in. Just know that he will work to all things together for good. He knows what he's doing. He's not forgotten. He's not, it's not out of his control. He knows exactly what he's doing. Not all earthly situations may change the way we want them in this life. That doesn't mean he's lost a grip on it. He knows exactly what he's doing for the good of you and for his glory. But as God's person in that place, with Holy Spirit dwelling in you, there is no greater potential for transformation and renewal. And for all of us, we are all Onesimus, aren't we? Released by grace into greater purposes. And like he, Onesimus, who came to Paul for help, we're invited to run to God and lean on his mercy. It's not hoping for the best or thinking you even deserve forgiveness. None of us do. But it's because he offers it freely and he invites us to come to him. So let's come to him and let's discover his riches. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you. We celebrate you. We are so grateful. Lord, in our human brains and our human hearts that are so often distracted and busy, Lord, help our minds and our hearts just to fully appreciate and some, have a greater glimpse of what it is you've done for us. Lord, we, in Christ we are rich and yet we don't always feel like it. We hear the devil's lies in our ears. Let us, let us get into the word more and more and discover what it is we have in you. Holy Spirit, we just revive something fresh in us to realise that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are yours now. We are no longer our own even, but we are bought with a price. And we belong to you. The best place we could ever be. Help us to realise it more. Help us to know you more. Help us to revel in it more. Help us to pay it forward more. In Jesus' name. Amen.